Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the absolute joy of talking to Kim Brophy about ethology. If you listen to dog podcasts the way I do, you're probably already a bit obsessed with Kim. Today, we're going to dive into how we can use ethology to better select and meet the needs of our working dogs. So welcome to the podcast, Kim, and why don't you remind our listeners or tell our listeners who may not be as deep in the dog podcast world a little bit about yourself. Uh, hey, Kayla, and thanks for having me back, um, or I should say on one of the um, newest or first episodes for your kind of you know, redesigned um, Yes, podcast. our pivot. Yes, yeah. your pivot. Um, it's very cool. So, um, yeah, I am a an applied ethologist, and so um, ethology being the study of animal behavior kind of in their natural habitats from an evolutionary perspective, uh, applied ethology is studying animals that are under some form of human control, some type of captivity. So um, farms, zoos, laboratories, and then, of course, our companion animals, um, who many of us don't think of as captive animals, but they actually are captive and domesticated. And so um, we're studying kind of the intersection of human and animal behavior there, largely from an evolutionary perspective, um, which gets a lot more complicated with domesticated animals because of uh, artificial selections and fun stuff that we'll be talking about today. Um, but yeah, I'm a behavior consultant kind of in practice um, and then doing a lot of professional education in the field right now to bring ethology into the dog training and behavior world. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think by now people hopefully are going to understand a little bit about why we're so excited for this interview. Um, and before we dive into it, I have to remind all of our listeners that the Field Vehicle Repair Fundraiser is ongoing. As I record, the van is um, still in getting its engine reworked and hopefully will be ready to go by the end of May and um, ready to go in time for our field season. But if you want to help support that, you can either join our Patreon, which has a couple really exciting new options we'll talk about in an ad break as well as you can just um, support right over directly on our GoFundMe link. Both of those will be linked in our show notes. So Kim, as we were, um, as we were kind of doing our pre-interview um, before we hit record, we were talking about arousal in different dog breeds and how that can look different and how that could apply to this field. So why don't we, um, why don't we just dive back into this? We were, you know, we were picking on Malinois a little bit and then you brought up bloodhounds. So let's talk a little bit about potentially why a bloodhound um may not be an ideal conservation detection dog. And then we can always circle back to our Malinois because that's a slightly more fraught conversation because they are a little bit more popular in the field. Hmm. Well, and of course, I, you know, just up front, don't do <clears throat> canine conservation work. Um, I am completely interested in it. And it's one of those mm -hmm. kind of bucket list things I'd love to do later on in life when I have some more time to kind of get into some special personal interests. Um, but I, I would love to hear about your own experience working mm -hmm. with um, conservation dogs in different environments for different species. But you know, the example we were talking about right before we started with like a bloodhound or scent hounds is, um, you know, scent hounds of course have amazing odor detection abilities like you know more so than other breeds uh, because of their their selective pressures from people breeding them to track animals uh, historically for hunting as opposed to for conservation um, but when you're tracking an animal for hunting um, you know oftentimes the the dog is going to be uh, a further distance away from the handler not always but oftentimes and they were developed for baying upon arousal in 
order to help the hunters figure out where the dogs were, you know, and what, therefore what kind of where the prey was. Um, and so this is long before we had GPS devices to kind of literally know exactly where the dog is in the field. And so that baying was really helpful historically for hunters. Um, and I was just imagining that depending on what kind of species you were using the, the canine conservationist for, that might actually be tricky because you might say be, um, you know, trying to locate some type of an animal that would be very sound sensitive to the baying mm-hmm. and might run when the dog located that particular um, species uh, upon hearing all that baying. And I think one of the things that just kind of generally that makes me think about is that we've bred all these specialist breeds of dogs, types of breeds of dogs to respond in very specific ways to specific conditions. And so you've got that interplay between the environment and those kind of releasing stimuli. Um, and, and of course we can affect what will be some of the releasing stimuli, right? We can kind of like funnel it this way or that and say here, this particular scent, not this one, et cetera. Um, but it's really hard to affect what type of arousal response or response in terms of that arousal that particular type of dog will have. So you were talking about a mouse being kind of bitey upon arousal, which is, of course, what we've bred Mallies to do upon arousal, or at least part of their kind of behavioral repertoire upon arousal. Um, And so while we can work with those behaviors to some degree, there are limitations within that in terms of exactly what we can modify um, with their kind of behavioral software. Yeah, exactly. And I know it's it's so interesting. I hadn't even, when I've talked to people about hounds and, you know, people will say like, oh, I've got, you know, I've got a young uh, blue tick coon hound or, um, you know, a basset or whatever it is. Like, do you think we could get into this this line of work? Generally, what I've, what I've pointed to as far as why we don't do much with hounds in this line of work is the difference between a scent trailing dog and an air scenting dog, mm-hmm. um, which... You know, it gets a little bit technical for people um, who aren't in this this line of work, and I tend to get some people with their eyes glazing over. But you know, the difference with a trailing dog is that they're usually doing some amount of like a match to sample sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, where you know they sniff the hairbrush and then go follow to find the missing child, mm-hmm. um, or they sniff the rhino horn and then go track down that individual rhino. And there actually have been a couple dogs that have been trained to do that sort of thing. I'm not entirely sure why um, they need the dog to track down an individual rhino, but I would imagine it's for health checkup or something like that um but um you know and that's quite different from just kind of getting out of the car and telling the dog to search and the dog is actually searching like the Mm -hmm. air and spending a lot of time looking not even looking obviously they're scenting for Mm -hmm. the odor molecules that are available in the air and then following that odor cone Mm -hmm. which is it's very different from starting the dog on a track where you kind of know that someone once was there and that's much more so to my understanding what hounds are bred for i'm sure that people have successfully trained hounds to do more of the air scenting sort of thing but they are they do tend to be very very ground scenting tracking focused um but the baying is also a great point you know just yesterday um and this will come out two weeks before this interview um i was interviewing um esther matthew from uh south africa and she did a she was talking about just this amazing project where she's trained um her border collie to find this highly highly endangered species of rabbit Um, And they were actually locating the live rabbits. And then the handler had to be close enough when the dog located the rabbit that when the rabbit flushed, the handler could confirm whether or not it was the correct species of rabbit. Mm -hmm. So for a dog that worked really independently and was baying ahead Mm -hmm. of itself, um, 
that that would you know really obviously just not work well for that particular project yeah no and all that really just kind of expands my understanding and you know in thoughts about how those kinds of things would come into play like in your particular line of work with dogs you know because you're right i mean that kind of tracking that's and that singular mindset right that scent hounds were developed to get into with it so you know when if they get on a scent that is very arousing whether that's something that we build up to be arousing or something that's just kind of naturally arousing for them um you know then they they get like literally consumed by that because that was a good scent hound right like a good scent hound gets on that trail and come hell or high water doesn't come off of it and you know that like that perseverance um is really fantastic if you're trying to track an animal over especially long distances but for work where we're needing a little bit more like give and take interplay nuance you know flexibility um the ability for us to kind of like be close in proximity as you say work in closer partnership and even proximity with the person um those things are going to matter you know yeah, absolutely. And I know there is a guy, um, I believe in South Africa, and I'm forgetting his name, but I'll try to find him and drop him into the show notes, who um, has a pack of hound dogs. They're ch- I believe they're trained by a guy in Texas as well. Um, so I'll try to find both of them. And if, if they're not connected, um, they are. They do do similar work. Um, oh, and the, the guy in South yeah yeah so they do poaching um and they're actually tracking the poachers yeah Um, and i believe that they actually basically release this pack of hounds and then they follow them in a helicopter you know which is the 2021 version of (laughs) chasing after your hound dogs on horseback yeah Um, yeah i saw that actually and i thought that was a really cool story and it was also just kind of interesting you know, trying to separate my emotional self from my more objective self about the situation. I remember when, when I first heard about it, I don't even remember the article that I read. I wish I could, if I remember, I'll tell you, you pop it in the show notes later. Um, but you know, the breeder in Texas was talking about how they were breeding the dogs for aggression, um, to, to be a little bit more aggressive in case, I guess they find the poachers, you know, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think they are supposed to be able to take down the poachers. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's a whole kind of interesting dynamic in itself. And, you know, um, and, and they have a specialized breeding program for that and a specialized like early socialization and training program for it. And they were talking about some of the dogs from Texas making it and being good enough for the work and others not. And, you know, I think the kind of point generally that it brings up is it, the shoe's got to fit, right? It's like, it, there, it's got to be that you have the right tool for the job. Um, and, and that's a, it's a really important consideration to me and all of, you know, the work that we've talked about before, just in pet homes and stuff like that, is that oftentimes we have the wrong tool for the job, right? We have like a working dog in a pet home, and that's a lot of what's behind the, the increase in pet behavior problems, you know, pet dog behavior problems, in my opinion. Um, and so in this case, we actually want the working traits. It's more about getting really detailed about what specific traits you want. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think where 
I know I get nervous and I, you know, and it's not just this breeder in Texas. I don't want to pick on him, but you know, anyone who's breeding Malinois for ring sport or, or Dutch shepherds, or, you know, we can pick on any number of breeds is thinking about, okay, where do, where do the dogs who don't make it in the working, the working lines end up? Mm -hmm. Um, and how are we making sure that we pair them appropriately so that potentially as they do reach, um, social sexual maturity and, and hit more releasing stimuli, you know, because a dog who maybe couldn't make it as a dog who tracks poachers over miles and miles through the South African bush and take those dogs down, a dog could conceivably fail, quote unquote, at that job and still be a very, very poor candidate for your average pet mm. home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's not really what we're here to talk about, but it is something that I love thinking about. <laughs> yeah, um, I just, I do think it's an important thing to keep in mind because, you know, for whether we're talking about Pyrenees, whether we're talking about um, those particular dogs in Texas, whether we're talking about um, folks, you know, developing Mallies for ring work, um, or we're talking about the fact that there's still a bunch of, you know, jerks out there that are breeding dogs for dog fighting. And then some of those dogs don't make it. Simon Gabois brought up that point, you know, in the interview that we had the other day um, uh, about, you know, there, if you have all these people breeding for, the, for those traits, and then you have one that isn't aggressive enough, but still they were intentionally bred to be dog aggressive, um, and, and be injurious, then, then what happens when that dog doesn't make it? Do they end up in the local gene pool in the shelter? You know, there's a lot of considerations. Totally. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, I, uh, I love my, my neurotic working line border collies and you know, they're, they're not good pets for most people. Like I have had so many dog sitters, like as I come to collect my dog after a trip, kind of hand them over and like their eyes are wide and kind of bloodshot. And they're just like, I don't know how you do it. He looks so good in your YouTube videos. And you're like, oh, they, um, are, they are good, but they're like, you know, permanent crackheads. I actually got a um, really hysterical video of my 14-year-old Border Collie mix even, okay? So, like, mm-hmm. yes, probably one half of his ancestry will get the DNA back soon. We can chat about that. It'll be fun. Oh, my but goodness, I, yes. I have a sh- I'm, I've placed wagers with my husband about exactly what I think is in there. Um, but I would wager working line Border Collie on the one side and American Eskimo, which just makes him nuts and neurotic on the other side. Um, but he was – my son yesterday was playing basketball ball we were all joking around on mother's day and like the border collie is just hurting him because of his like crazy basketball Mm -hmm. moves and everyone joking around Mm -hmm. i mean like it's it's there right and it's like my border collie was hurting a pile of firewood yesterday uh two (laughs) days ago where he he wanted us to throw the stick and every time we didn't throw the stick for too long he did this like beautiful like go out circle around it lie down like and it's like we've done a couple hurting lessons and he he's almost 10 percent chow (laughs) wow uh he is like he's like 86 percent border collie and then 10 percent chow and four percent lab or something so i don't know what happened back in the grandparents uh generation (laughs) but so let's let's circle back a little bit to to our malinois and uh and and, you know and we don't even necessarily have to pick on malinois we can like i kind of lump a lot of our our bitey shepherds into this group. So our Malinois, I'll our Dutch shepherds, our bitey shepherds. Yeah. Bitey shepherds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, to, to distinguish them from our Australian shepherds and our yeah. English shepherds. No, they, they, um, bred the, they bred the bite back in. That's important for people to know, right? Like they were yeah. herding dogs at one point we had selected against the bite, but then they were developed yeah. for human herding. Basically, you know, you start mm-hmm. talking about use for police and military work and stuff and they yeah. bred the bite back in. 
Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, you know, our Malinois, our duchies, our, uh, you know, even uh, like our turves, our Grunendales. I, I, yep. <laughs> I can't yep. pronounce that uh, one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and, our, and of course, our German shepherds. Um, right. And, you know, and there's there's obviously differences between breeds, but, you know, I find it really interesting. And I think you do as well to talk more about these breed groups and the similarities there, because I think we tend to be more more accurate when we even lump a little bit more and zoom out mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, and again, you know, what I've seen is that they, they seem to have, you know, they're more likely to grab and bite, which can make them painful and frustrating to just train. Um, you know, I've had more, more shirts ripped by Malinois um, than border collies by a long shot, even though I've spent a lot less time working with the Malinois. Um <laughs> But also, you know, similarly with potential prey animals, um, the I feel like I've seen, no, I don't even feel like, I know that I have seen more kind of concerning behavior that looks more like an intact predatory sequence mm-hmm. from our, our shepherds in this line of work. And that is part of the reason that I personally don't know if I'm ever going to end up working a shepherd um, in this line of work as much as I love them. And they're, they're excellent, excellent, excellent at the job. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing in itself, even you talking about the predatory sequence, because if you talk about herding dogs in general, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people like just to kind of nerd out on the predatory sequence for a minute. A lot of people don't realize that um, uh, a great many of the jobs that we have artificially selected dogs to do throughout history Um, those specific behaviors are modified versions of the predatory sequence. And so with herding dogs, you know, generally, if we're just speaking in generalizations, we wanted a really strong um, orient eye stalk chase, but we wanted it to be really sensitive to feedback, um, have a lot of nuance and flexibility within it. And then we did not want a grab bite and a kill bite and the dissect and consume for obvious reasons, because we didn't want our livestock to be grabbed because, you know, a lot of them will fall over and die of shock, even if the bite isn't that horrible. So like, you know, those things were like a little bit mutually exclusive from the kind of original shepherd herding dog purpose. But when you breed that back in, you're breeding those back, those last steps of the predatory sequence that we had kind of historically artificially selected to mute, you know, um, we've, we've bred those things back in for those purposes, like we were talking about for, you know, being able to grab the perpetrator or the offender or what have you in, in, in bite work. Um, and so it, it's a little harder potentially, even though you still have that herding dog flexibility in terms of they're supposed to stay responsive to our feedback and our directions and our, you know, cues and prompts and, um, uh, directions. It's hard. It's a little bit harder when you know that there's, so to speak, there's a bullet at the end of it, right? Meaning like there could be follow through where if I'm working with like a border collie or an Australian shepherd or even a cattle dog, like the level of follow through that I'm concerned about is a lot lower. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cause yeah, again, and I always, when I'm giving talks, I always mention this where it's like, any border collie that 10 generations ago um, harassed a lamb a little bit too roughly or, you know, heaven forget bit actually grabbed a lamb was mm-hmm. absolutely not bred. And in all likelihood, I would imagine was, was removed completely, yeah. <laughs> you know, not just removed from the breeding population. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's just, it's different. And I don't know, um, you know, I don't know enough about predatory sequences to, to know 
more about, you know, the idea of muting things and then bringing them back in with our shepherds. But again, um, you know, I've noticed with my border collies, they still will be responsive to movement um, in this line of work. So, you know, the situations where you flush a rabbit or we've got a prairie dog running from one hole to the next and kind of crosses the horizon line um, in front of the dogs. And the border collies do tend to be highly reactive to that sort of movement. Mm-hmm. But... Even if they, I've I've been able to call my border collies off of that, and I've also been able to call the Malinois off of that, um, with with enough work. But I have found that generally, um, I've never had a border collie actually grab whatever it is that they were going for, and I mm-hmm. have had the Malinois um, grab things and pick them up. They just they do tend to be more orally fixated, mm-hmm. uh, or you know more mouthy, or however we want to we want to say it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, like, I think my dream dog behaviorally for this line of work would be something like a, like almost like a border collie springer sort of dealio, mm, mm-hmm. um, which I think could create a lot of, um, a lot of internal conflict. Cause I know both of my border collies really don't like spaniels. Um, they get stressed out by that constant frenetic movement. Um, mm-hmm. I've really noticed like the barley uh, kind of behavior. Yeah, and just, you know, they tend to be so wiggly and they do so much kind of like pacing and quartering even mm-hmm. indoors that mm-hmm. I can, like, when I've fostered uh, Spaniels, I can just see my Border Collie, like, he's like trying to lie down and trying to turn off, but is so uh, just like, oh my God, stop moving, sit down. <laughs> like, he just can't, uh, they're very stressful for him to be around. But anyway, like, because I think, you know, an ideal dog for this line of work would have some element of like the more of a hunting dog, like the really natural flushing and quartering, a little bit more independent work, and generally a, an even less intact predatory sequence. Because if we think about it, like our herding breeds are much more bred to actually chase mm-hmm. um, and control movement. And, you know, that's therefore hard for them when they flush a prey animal um, or a non target animal. I guess we don't always want to call our, our study subjects mm-hmm. prey animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, versus, you know, again, in my experience, the labs and the, and the springers don't seem to struggle with that quite as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting cause you talk about like the gun dogs. I mean, we bred, um, a strong kind of, you know, muting and, and kind of a pause. It's almost like a stall out in a way into, um, the predatory sequence with the gun dogs because we, we wanted to either have the the game birds set upon, um, pointed out, or flushed out, and then retrieved potentially by any number of different kinds of gun dogs. But we didn't want the dog to go and like grab it as part of the hunt, right? Like that was supposed to be our job with the gun, like to bring them down with the gun, as opposed to the dog actually like catching it. And so, um, just because of the nature of like the limited amount of meat, you know, um, and the sensitivity of that meat. And so you could destroy a small, you know, um, lowland game bird with one good bite. And so you have this, this kind of interesting ability to, to intervene upon it at that point, um, without a lot of that chasing of the fast movement, you know, that you get like, right with the herding dogs and stuff. And it's, it's almost like, at what point do you have, the most flexibility. Um, and, and then one of the things about both gun dogs and herding dogs that I think would make both of them really ideal if I'm imagining, you know, with conservation work being that I don't actually do it, um, is that you're going to need, I would imagine a lot of dialogue with the dog that you're working with and you need a dog that is going to be receptive 
to and interested in your guidance and feedback and information. And, you know, quite honestly, there's a bunch of dogs that could, I'm sure, from just a pure scent detection perspective, be able to locate whatever those species were. But then th- there's all of those other kind of, you know, yeah, the luck staying that- on their radar. Yeah. Right. I always make yeah, that joke exactly. about like, you know, there's no reason that a greyhound or a husky can't do this work physically. Right. right. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, like, then of course you could argue that like, those genes are probably wired somewhere physically in their brains. Um, (laughs) But um, you know, as far as like the, what their, their olfactory capabilities are and Mm -hmm. you know, their conformation and everything, there's no reason that they couldn't, but I, I will be shocked the day that I see that because they're just, you know, they're not bred to be highly responsive to our direction. And both of them also, and it's interesting to me how a lot of our breeds and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just uh, doing what is it? Not, not confirmation bias, kind of confirmation bias. But anyway, a lot of our breeds that tend to be really independent and therefore would potentially be tricky for this line of work also tend to be our breeds with much higher prey drive. Like, do we have a lot of breeds with a much more intact predatory sequence that are also super highly responsive to people? Um, or I mean, vice versa. like, okay. So like with livestock guardian dogs, obviously you have a much lower predatory, like drive sequence, et cetera, because we didn't want them to predate against the animals they were guarding. So they're very independent. Um, but you know, don't have a, a strong in, at least it would be a fault, you know, in terms of having a predatory sequence. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think, so say your question again, just because I think I, I was kind of thinking about livestock guardian dogs. Um, I was trying to think of an example of a dog that has a really intact predatory sequence, okay, but is also generally kind of described as highly responsive to people. Hmm. I mean, um, so the intact predatory sequence sequences would be terriers, both types of hounds, scent and sight, the natural dogs. Um, and then by default, some of the bull breeds because of the terrier. Um, and so, Mm. yeah, um, I would almost maybe put pit bulls in like the most responsive. Yeah, no. Yeah. I I was going to say, yeah, because really I I think one of the interesting kind of things about terriers is that they can be super mm-hmm. responsive if you happen yeah, to be yeah. on, Jack on Russell's their Russell's on the other, yeah. you know, the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they can be very responsive, but I think once they find something more interesting to respond to, then all of a sudden we can fall off their radar like yeah. a cliff, you know? And so yeah. um, the, the whole thing about, like, when you get aroused by whatever, how on your radar do I stay? You know, mm-hmm. um, and of course, a lot of that is training. I mean, it's not like we're saying like, oh, they're like, you know, just born this way. And like, that's completely predictive because it's that it's that interplay. Like, you know, Simon Gebois and I were talking about between the nature and the nurture of, you know, so their experiences are going to turn certain things on or not, you know, or kind of direct things in a certain direction or not. So like, you know, if you get like a beagle, for instance, you know, anyone who's ever like raised a scent hound for a particular type of animal that they want to hunt with that scent hound. Yes, there's been certain types of scent hounds that were developed to track particular types of animals, but a lot of them will track 
and bay at any number of different kinds of wild animals until the person is kind of like working on really directing and funneling that drive in one particular direction and trying to minimize it in the other because you don't want that dog to get distracted trailing a deer when you're out there hunting rabbits, for instance. Um, and, and a lot of that is that like nurture part interaction, interacting with the nature, you know? Um, and so there's probably some of the basal breeds, if I had to guess in the natural dog group that were kind of like on the continuum towards say herding dogs, you know, um, take a Samoyed or something like that, right. Where you're like, you know, or an elk hound, like, so, so you're like, it's like almost like a stepping stone breed towards some of the other herding dogs. So they're getting a little more human centric, a little more, um, kind of malleable to our influence and direction, um, through that process of artificial selection. And I mean, that's the thing about like the 10 genetic groups, even as I talk about them, it's not like these are in this box, clean, cut and dry. These are in this box, clean, cut and dry. It's all kind of like, you know, this dog might have a little foot over in this one over here, or, you know, um, and, and it's not completely black and white. We're just kind of like, you know, using that categorization as a, a point of reference for people to start their expectations. Because frankly, if you got an elk hound, even if they were a herding basal breed, and you expected that elk hound to function like a working line border collie, you're going to be really disappointed too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would imagine one of Niffler's uh, best buddies in puppy kindergarten was an elk hound. Um, and it was funny, they had, we had a trio of the border collie, the elk hound, and the husky um, <laughs> that were like best buds. And it was so funny to watch, you know, when it came time to like catch your puppy and call them to you. And like, it, you know, it was always like Niffler came first, which, you yeah. know, I'm sure part of that is he's the one who gets to live with a professional trainer. Sure. Um, <laughs> and then the elk hound would come second. And then the husky was always the last one to be caught. Half the time, his people. <laughs> had to go collect him. And it was just this, this fascinating little paradigm of like, yeah, we've got our continuum of <laughs> our, like responsiveness in yeah. our little three stooges of, of gray and white puppies. Um, so th this is probably a question for Dr. Gadebois, um, who we are going to have on this podcast soon. But one of the other things, and this is changing tact a little bit that I've been really interested in thinking about, um, is like dopamine receptiveness in our dogs. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, I haven't read any of the primary lit on this or anything um, yet, but I don't know if you've got any thoughts on a lot of these breeds that we really like for this line of work tend to be these really high dopamine breeds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is that, uh, why is that? What does that mean? You know, I, I uh, again, well, I don't I think, know. You know, yeah, I, and ahead. again, Dr. Gabois will have a lot more to say on that. I mean, you know, he, he's understanding kind of the inner workings of the kind of, um, uh, bit like the behavioral endocrinology, right. Which is just mm -hmm. like, it's a whole nother world that I am not remotely going to pretend to be an expert in. But <laughs> what I do understand is that dopamine serves as a motivator and a reinforcer. And like, that's really interesting when you think about it, because it's like, and it makes sense, right? So like dopamine is just meant, it, I mean, I think someone used the example recently, I think it was in one of Mike Shikashi's podcasts um, uh, with Nando, um, and Joe Rosie, and they were talking about just like you wake up in the morning and you have like a s elevated dopamine, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, or even, and even cortisol, like, it's just like, there, mm -hmm. there are these, um, 
things that are operating that help to motivate us to behave appropriately in our environment, right? And so, mm -hmm. like, just having um, something in the environment that occurs that is something meaningful for you to interact with as an organism um, should motivate you to have an appropriate action. And so dopamine is part of that process, you know, so it's released to help motivate mm -hmm. an appropriate action. Um, and, and so when I'm thinking about working dogs and I'm thinking about dopamine in that sense, and I'm thinking about a motivator, like, I mean, I look at my Pyrenees, Newfoundland, who has like ridiculously low dopamine and it's like, I can just see why it would be difficult to get her engaged and keep her engaged. She's got a great sniffer, but I could just see her laying down in the pasture and being like, I just don't even feel like doing this today. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, it mm -hmm. just, and so even just on that motivation and I think you want a dog that is going to, when presented with the context that we're trying to help train and develop them for, will step up to the plate, right? Like we want a dog who's going to be ready to go and ready to work. Um, but then it is a good question because I would also wager that like terriers and, and um, scent hounds also have higher levels of dopamine. Um, you know, and, and I would love if I had like a whole second lifetime to just really be able to do specific studies on all the different groups of dogs and really be measuring their dopamine in real time, you know, when presented with certain stimulus. I mean, at scent hounds are one of those that I just have like questions and theories about, but obviously like no studies to back them up at this point about yeah. like, why are they so on and off? And actually like pities and a lot of the bullies too. It's like you yeah. get like really mellow, lazy, chill, seemingly kind of baseline low dopamine. Yeah. Right? For like 23 and a half hours a day. Right. And then this explosive high dopamine, you know, um, and athleticism. And so, um, yeah, I just think a lot of it is, is poking around and asking different questions and maybe creating some hypotheses, knowing that we really don't have a lot of the answers yet. Yeah, no, and I was, I've been thinking a lot about this dopamine question recently, because I was listening to a human psychology podcast, and they had, um, they had an expert on who has, you know, basically, you know, it's one of those many, like, kind of pop psychology, like, here are four different personality or brain types or whatever, but it was looking at dopamine, serotonin, estrogen, and testosterone. Um, and there was, like, a, a quiz sort of thing in the, um, in the podcast, and of course, there are much more, um, uh, much more in-depth ways to look at this. And again, it's, it sounds pretty pop psychology E to me. I haven't gone back and read the pop the lit yet, but I personally scored super high on dopamine and really low on serotonin, um, which makes sense. I am on an SSRI and have been really loving it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, just it's so interesting to think about like, I'm really drawn to these, these high dopamine dogs. And I'm one of, you know, in my friend groups, you know, ever since I was a kid, I've always been the one who's like, the most easily excited, the mm -hmm. most enthusiastic, the one who people are always being like, how do you have time for all of this? And I'm just like, my brain just needs more. It just always wants more. Like, yeah, when I come home, I unwind by doing more work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um. And it's like, you know, I think when I joke that my border collies and I are the same, I might be a lot more right on a neurochemical level than we are ever going to actually know. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, and that really makes me think about some of the other stuff that Simon Gabon and I were talking about. We were talking about Pang Steps work and like the seeking system. And, you know, he have his, has his like seven blue ribbon emotions and like, you know, and there's some other folks that have done some work. I think um, he mentioned, and I won't remember their names, some other uh, researchers that have kind of looked at that same set of questions. But, you know, this idea that... Um, there are different channels, if you will, that the brain kind of gets into um, for evolutionarily like adaptive reasons that, um, and, and you know, some of those things obviously are just like diversity and mutations that are occurring in natural selection as it just occurs. Like you have this like wild card factor where nature is always throwing that diversity, that variability back into the ring to see what works in what conditions better. Um, you know, I have a, I myself, I'm a very excitable person and always have been. And people will be like, God, how do you have the energy to do all those things? I'm like, my problem is turning it off, not like being able to motivate and turn it on, you know? Um, and so I'm sure I'm kind of a high arousal person. I'm sure that like, you know, I do have higher dopamine, I guarantee you than my husband does. Um, and you know, most of the people that I've ever worked with, but see, that's the second part of the dopamine, right? Is as a reinforcer and the reward center of the brain, you know? Um, um, and I, it's thinking about, like you said, that, that concept and feeling and urgency of more and more and more, right? Like, which any one of us who's ever had like a border collie can relate to like more and more and more again, again, again. Um, and, you know, that's actually um, in humans, they have also identified the gene 7R that they called the nomadic gene. It's a really good issue of National Geographic, did an article about that years ago. Um, and so this particular gene 7R is related to um, people that are diagnosed with ADD <laughs> um, uh -huh. or adult ADHD. Um, and, uh, also people that are prone to isms. So the development of things like alcoholism or, you know, drug addiction or exercise addiction or workaholism or whatever that might be, mm -hmm. is kind of, um, you know, that, that reward center of the brain and the orbitofrontal cortex that like is, is meant to say, oh, that's enough. Like that will, that'll do right. Like <laughs> people who have gene seven R are like, more, more, more. It's like, what about this? And what about this? And maybe we should do this. And if you think about it from like a human historical anthropology kind of perspective, right? Like, you know, this is what they were talking about in that National Geographic article about the nomadic gene is that like there, it, it takes both types in a way to make the world go round. Like, so if you yeah, had people that were gardening and doing agriculture and whatever that are satisfied with we have enough food and we're doing our thing and we're living off of the land, then you have those people that are like, but what's over there? What's over on that mountain? Or maybe I yeah. can invent this, or maybe there's a better way to do it. And often the people that are like that nomadic gene, you know, hyperactive ADD type personalities are also the ones that solve some of the world's biggest problems because they're thinking so outside the box because their brain isn't satisfied that we have all the answers or enough food yet or yeah. whatever that might be. I I know, I think I've read this article, I've read something else that was about it. And yeah, yeah, they were talking about, you know, we needed, or, you know, I guess we had, I don't know if we needed, but we had some people who were, you know, willing to make these little rafts and, you know, go out and find Polynesia. Right. <laughs> right. Um, like a little bit of crazy maybe, but like at the same time, yeah. that's what pushes innovation and exploration. Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, and I think they... 
Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, they had talked a little bit in in whatever article I had read about how you can actually find different levels of this this gene, I believe, or this gene variant in different populations. Where mm-hmm. you know, if you look at people who are you know like our Polynesians, for example, and I, I might be picking on the wrong the wrong country, but you know, we get the idea these island nations that had mm-hmm. to be um, colonized way back in like ancient human history. Um, they have a much higher level of this of this particular gene versus if you look at people in like you know the interior of russia um Mm -hmm. who have just kind of always been there forever and never left Mm -hmm. um they they um on a population level had a lower level and again i'm sure i'm getting a lot of this wrong um because i read this article like three years ago um but okay so we're gonna take a quick ad break and then i want to come back and we're gonna talk about um new zealand actually has a relatively different paradigm for how they do conservation dog work that i think really relates to this so we'll be back to talk about that Hey everyone, just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones can participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, So this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback back on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers, plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month, and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification, and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. All right, we're back. And I wanted to talk a little bit. So one of the things I find super fascinating, and this was actually the subject of the Fulbright grant that I originally wrote back in, oh gosh, 2018 now. I wanted to go to New Zealand and study their selection of conservation detection dogs, partially because New Zealand um, is the country that has had conservation detection dogs for the longest. There was a guy in 1890 named Richard Henry who started training his dogs to find, I think it was endangered ground nesting birds. And he was moving them from one island that was either infested uh, with rats or foxes, I can't remember which, to another island that didn't yet have those predators to help save the populations. But um, so anyway, you know, they've been doing this for a really long time versus here in the U.S. Um, conservation detection dogs really took off in like the 90s because our DNA analysis from scat got finally good enough that having dogs being able to collect a bunch of scat got really useful. Mm. Um, 
And that's what really kind of exploded the field here in the U.S. But so in here in the U.S., it's really, really normal. We've got um, a lot of our um, conservation detection dogs are trained using very similar methods to your bomb dogs, your search and rescue dogs, <clears throat> your border patrol dogs, where it's it's very much so about these, you know, these dogs that are absolutely toy crazy. We use them to teach them how, what we're looking for. And, you know, they'll work, they'll work through kind of insane amounts of adversity to get their ball. Mm-hmm. Versus in New Zealand, they use terriers to find invasive rats. They use bird dogs to find endangered birds. And they do much, much more so. And they, you know, when um, if you talk to some of them about like, oh, yeah, you know, here in the U.S., we use border collies and reward them with balls. They're just like, what are you talking about? Why would you use a border collie to find a bird? Um, oh, Interesting. Yeah, which which makes sense in terms of the natural receptivity for the particular species that they're using, right? So, or mm-hmm. particular species they're interested in finding and using the particular yeah. dogs for those particular species. I think it'd be tricky if you had like a conservation dog and you wanted to be able to work that dog on a variety of different kinds of species. Yes, I think that's probably part of part of the difference. Um, and I don't know how you would if you were. Trying to choose the perfect breed to get a dog to find an invasive plant. Mm-hmm. You know, where do you go with that? We don't have a dog breed that is bred to find plants, as far as I know. I guess maybe, well, actually, maybe like a Lagoto, um, right? which are yeah, bred exactly. for truffles. I was going to say truffles. Yeah, that would be the closest um, thing that I can think of. Um, which yeah, would be fascinating. And, oh my gosh, I'd love, now, I, now I'm like, maybe my next dog's a Lagoto. Maybe I need to try this. <laughs> have you ever worked with a Lagoto before? I've met a couple, but I've never like worked intensively. Oh my gosh. I'll just tell you right now. The only ones that I have worked with were absolutely in the top percent of intelligence dogs that I've ever worked with. Like, you think a poodle smart, like, and it makes sense, right? Cause they're like kind mm-hmm. of old school poodle ancestry, you know? Yeah. Um, but Oh my gosh, intelligent and actually incredible sensitive working drive. The Logoto that I worked with the first time, um, who ended up being quite too smart for her own good. Um, <laughs> she was a service dog, um, that I was training with a client. So she was training her own dog and I'm guiding her through that process. Everything we ever taught the dog, single trial, single trial, every new skill. Wow. It was it was just one of those dogs, you know, you, you get border collies and Aussies and stuff like that sometime where you're like, Hey, let me show you something. And they're like, okay, cool. You showed me this dog was so funny because she, she's the only dog I've ever worked with that if she got frustrated with, um, you know, us kind of in her mind, I guess, beating a dead horse, like we did something too many times, like being like, mm-hmm. Hey, like, let's do it again. Just to make sure you got it. She'd pee on the floor, um, to be like, and that's to tell you, I'm tired of your lesson. Like, and it was clockwork. And it was hilarious. She was an opinionated, strong-willed dog, um, but who was so intelligent she could pick up on anything. You what? I said, "What a cool young lady!" (laughs) Yes, she 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 absolutely was. Uh, very determined, but yeah. So I mean, small tangent there, but I, you know, the idea of using ethology um, to to think about what 
you know, which dogs are just going to have that natural kind of key to the lock fit to the particular things that you're trying to get them to work with is fantastic. I would have the question for folks in New Zealand, what do you do with that terrier when he finds that endangered rat, right? Because like most Mm -hmm. terriers upon finding an endangered rat would proceed upon grabbing said endangered rat. Well, and And I think they they tend to work them in muzzles. Um, I know that would explain a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think um, generally for the rats, it's pests. Um, They don't have native or endangered rats so there are the the terriers are doing the invasive pest side oh I and see. then and then the bird dogs are doing the endangered local oh, I got, okay that side. makes much more sense so if you do have um, some I collateral believe, damage I mean, they're okay well and i don't know then um you know, and this is where, like, we really need to just get a New Zealand a, a New Zealand conservation dog handler on to ask all these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you know where to find us and shoot us an email if you're, <laughs> you know, someone um, or if you are someone. Um, but, you know, so so say you're doing that, you've you've got your your terrier, your Jack Russell going out, and you're trying to find the rats. And I don't know, potentially you actually do allow that terrier to, dis- to dispatch the rats at the end. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, then what do you do if the terrier comes upon um, like an echidna or mm-hmm, right. um, do they have echidna in New Zealand or is that just Australia? No, I'm just, I, you know, but I so, know. there's got to be something down right. there that you wouldn't want your terrier to go after. And and if you're just going off of instinct, how, you know, how much malleability do you have into your target um, species? Um, right if you're not using like these external rewards and this would, you know, this is a similar question for like our scent hounds or something where I'm not quite sure how you convince your scent scent dog to, to just go for, uh, for foxes and ignore the deer. Um, you know, I, I, I genuinely don't know. And I don't know again, without some sort of external reward, how you get much malleability in this, where if you want to trade, change your dog from finding uh, ground nesting. So cockapo are ground nesting parrots in New Zealand mm-hmm. to potentially finding like Kia nests, which are, you know, it's a high Alpine parrot. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine most pointers are just going to tell you about most birds, but right. at some point then you don't want to know about the 10,000th rock dove. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's all, um, you know, I can see how you could basically just foster and encourage what shows up in the direction that you want it to go. And that just even that, you know, you get into some of the social behavior, right? Like it's just the endorsement and the provocation. It's kind of like, you know, I mean, one of the things that I just have always been so amused by, and I've done this with every one of my dogs, this is completely dumb, but I'm just amused by it, is every time like any one of my dogs ever started digging a hole and, you know, you start encouraging like, what is that? You know, what's in that hole? And they're like, oh, oh, you're into it? Okay, I'm going to dig more. Like you see that just like the suggestive power of being like, oh, it's in there. And then you get closer and you're like acting like you're interested too. Then they like start digging faster. Like, I mean, I, I think about that social layer, right? And I think about how if you're working with a dog for something like that, if you were kind of not endorsing of the dog pursuing or showing interest or, you know, in a particular species, that that should have some weight, probably more so with dogs that are bred for, you know, that's human sociability and partnership, you know, working so that they're, they're going to be more interested in your opinion of whatever it is that they're digging. Um, but, and, and then the same could be true that if you're, you know, encouraging and reinforcing the dog for engaging in that particular identification, that that's going to help like drive that neural pathway, like to become more carved out and more fluid, you know, and at a certain point, just the 
frequency with which that neural pathway has been traveled has staying power in itself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, then yeah. if you get enough water under the right bridge for a particular species, that in itself is competing with the dog's distractibility for the other mm -hmm. species because totally. you've got enough of that current. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And that's, to my understanding, that's how a lot of early conservation dogs were trained where, you know, it was a field biologist who was going out and trying to find a, I don't know, a given species of milkweed so that they could tag it to then come back and check it later in the season when it was big enough to host a monarch butterfly. You know, for example, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm describing a real thing at all. Um, but they were going out and they brought their dog out in the field. And, you know, every time they stopped and found a milkweed, they were showing some interest in it. They tagged it. Maybe they gave the dog a snack mm -hmm. and it doesn't take all that long before you have a dog who's kind of self-taught in conservation dog work, who will just kind of be like, Hey, weren't we looking for, for this over right. here? Mm -hmm. um, you know, didn't you, don't you like these? <laughs> um, and uh, again, that's my understanding of, uh, you know, those dogs wouldn't necessarily, they may or may not have what it takes to then do this professionally where you're asking them to go out and do it for hours and hours every day, species after species, mm -hmm. you know, month after month. Like that's again, where, you know, I don't know about like the individual dog, but as far as them kind of going out and like helping you in the field, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of dogs that, um, have been able to do that historically. And, um, you know, that's another thing I always tell people when they're interested in getting into this field is like, you know, you you may not have the dog who has what it takes to do what Barley does right now, where we do different species every couple months and we're going out and working him, you know, working his toenails to a stub um, and he loves every single second of it. But you might have a dog where, yeah, if you volunteer with your local invasive species weed removal crew, that dog could probably come out into the field with you and be helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny you were just talking about that. It made me think about um, this phenomenon. I remember when I, I learned about it years ago, first from Temple Grandin, and then um, read a really good article, actually, that I can send you. You can also put in the show notes about dopamine Excellent. specifically. Yes, and, and one of the reasons that, um, you know, I just love those two things connecting with each other is because both were describing how the dopamine is at its highest right before actual acquisition of the concrete award reward. So it's kind of like, let's say you're shopping for the perfect black dress or whatever. It's like, it's when you see it like 10 feet away on the rack and you're like, Oh my God, I think I this think is it. it. Oh, is it my size? You know, it's that moment when the dopamine is the highest, it's not actually like the buying the dress part and taking it home. Uh -huh. part, Right. And so it makes yeah. me think about or wearing like, it what, the first time or right. Yeah. No, it's, it's none of that. It's, it's, it's the right at that last moment. Right. So if you're I'm thinking definitely about happiest when I think about buying a cookie and not when I'm actually eating the cookie. <laughs> right, right. You're like, it's that moment when I'm, Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that first bite. Right. So then I wonder yeah. if that's, um, you know, partly to explain kind of, um, the self reinforcing nature of once we've kind of fostered the, that neural pathway of seeking and looking for this particular thing that there's any kind of reinforcement history behind at a certain point. So whether that's a genetic reinforcement history, so like nature or human artificial selection has said, this thing is meaningful and you mm -hmm. should seek it. So we've, you know, that's been bred in on some level with, with dogs, but then also how we then influence it through that nurture and our feedback and the environment and training, et cetera, to mm -hmm. become specifically meaningful. 
then you have at a certain point, like this, this response that's happening internally where it's like, oh, I think I found it. Oh, I think I found it. That's that in itself continues to reinforce the dog for totally looking for the, whatever that might be. It's just kind of fun to think about the sensitivity of, of all of those processes um, internally for the animal and how much is going on that is it's invisible to us, you know? Yeah, uh, I know. And if we think um, it's the ball that's reinforcing it, but it could totally. be this whole other thing after a while. Yeah, exactly. I know um, rogue detection teams on their Instagram, um, this was several months ago now, so maybe like February 2021, had a bunch of really cool posts where they talked about the difficulty of when you've got a dog who's made an alert and you need to go over and confirm whether or not the dog is correct. And in some cases, you know, if you're looking for like, bumblebee nests or, mm -hmm. um, you know, lizard scat or something like that, you're going to have to really dig around in the leaf litter, even if the dog is telling you, you know, it's in a foot of here. Mm -hmm. um, and even the act of the handler coming over and starting to inspect an area as the dog has made an alert can be enough for some of these dogs to, to then start it. wanting to, to reinforce, yeah, and tell you about, you know, whatever it was that wasn't correct. And it's mm. just, um, you know, as far as when we're talking about off-target indications, which is kind of my preferred term for a false alert, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's not just about whether or not you gave the dog the ball. It's whether or not how much time you spent inspecting it, what your response was as, as you're doing that, or if the dog was not alerting to something that you wanted, how you kind of react to that. Um, and certainly not like digging around and pulling a ball out preemptively, even if you don't give it. Um, right. Yeah. And the subtlety that goes back to the social referencing part we were talking about earlier, that social psychology component of like our endorsement or lack of endorsement for any particular behavior. So in this case, like indicating, you know, um, that, that we've, found put the potential target or what have you that has real ethological weight and this is something we tend to think very operantly still about all behavior that like we're rewarding or punishing the behavior you know we're mm -hmm. controlling whether or not this is yeah. reinforcing for you or not and we're not as powerful as we think we are like yes all that's very real it's just not the whole story and something like i mean actually i, I try to explain this to clients all the time too is if you like if your dog is barking like crazy at every person that walks by your house and every time your dog is barking out the window, you come up and stare and look too at whatever the dog is barking at. The dog can perceive that response as you taking cues from them, which on its own right can potentially reinforce the behavior if we're both looking together outside the window at the thing we're making it more meaningful like and so the subtlety of like okay if the dog does a particular behavior and then we even come closer to, to inspect whatever it is that you found like i was talking about encouraging my dogs with the holes like if i come closer yeah. to the hole that they're digging in it's the same thing it encourages the behavior and it'll increase and i think you know that's that same phenomenon is even true like with aggression right so we'll see that like a dog is being aggressive or potentially aggressive or there's this tense moment or whatever and sometimes when the people move in towards that tension or the altercation is when it will actually escalate because yes, there's yeah. something about just even the increasing sense of other social members kind of coming 
coming in that can turn on or, you know, further arousal. So there's a lot of, of interesting stuff that can be going on beneath the surface that's motivating and reinforcing for the animal. Would love to hear Simon's um, or Simon's, um, you know, take on that and, and like what is, is going on in those moments, like step by step. But it's, it's yeah. fascinating to say the least. And it's definitely about more than the ball. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That, God, that could be a t-shirt for us. It's about more than the ball. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, and I don't know practically how to fix that as a handler, as far as like, you do need to go over there and you do need to confirm. And, mm-hmm. you know, in theory, if you've trained your dog well, um, and we talked about this with Stacey Barnett on an episode that should have dropped by the time this one airs um, about sourcing and how a lot of what we're doing when we're training our dogs um, is thinking about, or she and I are at least, um, thinking about really getting the dog to be working the odor and you're really working to pay attention to their body language. And so it's not just about the alert because a lot of times if um, if your only way as a handler to tell whether or not your dog is on target is by them alerting, mm-hmm you're going to miss so much um, because that just that final response that down um, for my dogs lying Mm -hmm. at the target um, is so easy for the dog when they're tired or frustrated to just kind of like, I've seen Barley do this where he just kind of like and like lies down and it's so different from his normal alert. But when I was a newer handler, I had a really hard time noticing that because I wasn't watching his tail. I wasn't watching mm-hmm. his, his breathing set. I wasn't watching for the crabbing and the bracketing and all the other like, Oh my gosh, fun, sexy body language things that I get mm-hmm. to look for now. Um, so now I feel like I can really tell the difference. And, but anyway, so much of that for me is about de-emphasizing the alert for the dog so that when you can kind of tell that they're they're just downing because they're tired or they're frustrated, you can just kind of redirect them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also is where it's helpful to be working like a no and hide if your dog is struggling with this because then you can you know for a fact that like you put something out there and the dog's at the wrong area. Mm-hmm. Um But obviously, again, sometimes in the field, that's just not possible. And I don't quite know, you know, with Barley, I will come over, inspect things in a really neutral voice, and then kind of cue him to search again. Um, And then hopefully be able to put something out so that I can reward him at something that is confirmable. Um, Because, you know, in the real quick just to to emphasize like your tone of voice that you brought that in right like i mean something that subtle again that's that social referencing component is it's not like the reinforcing good dog it's just even your tone yeah yeah it's just like no search you know, and just being this, oops, I'm sorry, guys. Both my dogs were like, what am I looking what? for? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <God. laughs> Must be a kitten. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I was, I, it's so funny when I watch training videos, like I'm assessing training videos of them. Like you can hear they're, they're getting better at it now, but especially depending on which speaker system my computer is hooked up to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I hear, if I say, search or uh chase which is their their cue for um their ball being thrown um both of the dogs are yeah so reactive to that still (laughs) um okay but um yeah so there's the body language thing and just you know this this tonal thing and then also like i will turn physically you know rotate my hips away and start taking a couple steps um when i was first teaching this with barley and definitely with the malinois that i spent a lot of time handling i actually sometimes had to have them on leash and just kind of gently (laughs) physically move them 
But it's so challenging. And this is the, one of the things that I find most challenging in this field. And it's one of the things that I really, really hope that in five or 10 years down the line in this field, I'm going to have a better answer for. But, you know, what do we do at these times where we have these unconfirmed heights um, or these unconfirmed alerts where, you know, particularly if we're working with, say, um, you know, I'm always picking on this black-footed ferret project that I worked on where, um, you know, it's a black-footed ferret, it's down a hole, um, they're nocturnal, they're mostly solitary, unless we're lucky enough to wake it up and piss it off and then it chatters at us, mm-hmm. we're just not going to know whether or not the dog is correct. In most cases, there are times where we are able to work with, like, a collared ferret and we know that the ferret was seen at 5 a.m. near this hole and then the dog mm-hmm. is alerting to it at 8 a.m. We can say it's probably there. Um but, you know, what, so, like, what do we do there? You know, you don't want to give the dog a correction because you don't know they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And I don't even like entering corrections into my training period, and especially not within uh, scent training, which I always want to be a fun, enthusiasm-filled thing for my dogs. You know, and I, uh, I don't know. Like, there are times where, like, I do give, like, a verbal redirection, which I think a redirection and a correction are kind of the same thing. Um, but we can get into that some other time. <laughs> yeah, I would, uh, you know what I would be curious about is with herding dogs anyway, just because the distance increasing behavior of ascending away is so kind of naturally part of their ethology yeah. software programs. Like, it makes me wonder whether in a situation... Like what you'd have to breed it into all your, your entire sequence. I mean, not breed it. You'd have to like work it into your entire training sequence for it to work without being punishing for the dog in some situations. But if like, if they had an alert, so, and you don't know if it's a false alert and you don't want to accidentally reinforce it just by moving in towards it, you know, you could build in something into the kind of sequence where the dog would alert. And then upon realizing that you've noticed the alert, there was a cue that was an out like come away, give space mm, 10, mm-hmm. 15 feet, and then await while you inspected because mm-hmm. that would buffer against the likelihood that the dog would perceive you coming in towards that particular target as totally. reinforcing. Yeah. You know? like, I yeah, mean, I love that idea. Just putting them on a stationers. I mean, I could yeah, totally just totally. bring a towel into the field, throw it down. Barley is beautifully mat trained. He would go, yeah. he would station on it. Well, and then if and they then got like, it right, you could bring them back in, do you know? And that right. would reinforce the crap out of it because that would be like the whole pulling back of the rubber band phenomenon yeah. where you, it's like this, this down, the start stay for agility, you know, like how it yeah. like you're, you're springing back that, that, that excitement and that anticipation. And they would probably, if they had it right, they'd be chomping at the bit to rush back and per- get that reinforcement. Whereas if they got it wrong, you'd be like, oh, well you know, yeah. and then walk away from that target area that just, you know, it's so fun to think about. Yeah, all those I, th- I think that would actually work really beautifully. I think I'm going to have to start trying that. And then I think with Barley, and I would not be able to implement this with Niffler yet. I think with Barley, I, he's got a solid enough go to mat behavior that I wouldn't have to reinforce it. Cause then the tricky thing would be like, if the dog is working for a couple hours and yes, they want their ball, but then you're reinforcing them with food for going onto their mat. Oh, you could still build, you you, you would still build some sort of behavior chain. Absolutely. Um, The mat, the good, the out and the weight, whether, and you, I mean, frankly, you, you know, as long I think as, with a herding dog, you'd be able to do it relatively easily. I think it, it would be really hard to get a springer to do that. Yeah. I, like I think you, I, I think our, our springer handlers or our lab handlers listening might need 
a different solution that is more ethologically valid for those breeds. Right. I agree it would work so much easier with a herding dog, particularly a Mm -hmm. sheep herding dog, where like removing pressure from such such a sensitive type of flock or herd animal, you know, Mm -hmm. is a valuable and necessary part of their ethogram. Um, and, but, but yeah, I think whether you used a mat or whether you just did kind of an out, you know, down stay, mm-hmm. um, you could build up a, a reliability of that and actually separately. So you're not using food for that particular behavior, right. But like build that up as kind of part of the sequence. Ultimately, once they've got that behavior separately, weave it in as part of the sequence so that they know that you always upon locating, you indicate it's right here. You wait till I've noticed the alert and then you're sent away mm-hmm. for confirmation, you know, then, and then it's self-reinforcing at that point, just to go away totally. and wait, knowing that if I'm right, it would be interesting as a hypothesis to see whether it accidentally, because they could back chain the behavior sequence, they, it might have kind of conditioned reinforcement value just to even go to the mat in anticipation of coming mm-hmm. back to whatever mm-hmm. it was they alerted yeah. on. You know, this I is what it gets totally into the, the tricky of like the operant yeah. part of it. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, like on a logistical matter as well, I think I would need the dog to hold its alert until I could walk up and throw a pin flag where they alerted. Oh, because. Right. Because unless they're they're alerting to like the base of a given tree or something, which I have seen before when sure. I, I shadowed a, a jaguar and big cat scat detection dog in Costa Rica, and a lot of times they're alerting to latrines that are at the base of trees. So mm. you know, in that case, like I can see, like okay, he alerted in between those two roots of a capoc tree. We'll go yes. up there. But if we're out in a field, I need my dog to hold his alert because if I put my pin flag or if I think he alerted just like two feet away and he's alerted to a little rosette of an invasive plant that's only an inch and a half tall and two inches wide, I really need to be able to put my pin flag and search really close to where he actually alerted because otherwise it's almost like, like you need ah! like a tiny hacky sack at the bottom of the pin flag. So it's weighted enough that you can toss it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh. I, I, well, and now I'm imagining my border collie thinking that that's his ball. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I've got a dog with a, a hacky sack pin flag running around. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something I definitely want to try and play with and think through and like, you know, can I, could I at least walk up while the dog is holding his alert, put a pin flag in, do that nice and neutrally, and then call the dog away to, to his mat or to his place. Um, and like, I, that still would build less anticipation mm-hmm. than him having to be right there as I'm rooting around in, right. in the grass. It, it like, it wouldn't be perfect, but it would, it would at least let me get close enough to figure out what, he, where he's alerted. Right. And then, Cause you can be very deliberate away. about walking up neutrally in your body language. And as long as he doesn't per- perceive from that social referencing component, you searching, then that won't accidentally reinforce it, you know? Um, but like, I mean, again, I'm and not being particularly in this field, like, but just mm-hmm. being like really into kind of weird creative solutions. I mean, you could take like a fishing weight, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. they have like, you could get like a tiny little fishing weight that just had some little brightly colored whatever on it. Keep like a dozen of them in your pocket or something, mm-hmm. but something that isn't, it's heavy enough that you could toss it 10, five or 10 feet, but it's small enough, you know, that it's not going to damage anything that you're, 
you know, talking yeah. about. Yeah. Well, I was, um, I was trying to think about This is where like my crazy, um, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an inventor. I either <laughs> wanted to be an inventor or Jane Goodall or Steve Irwin. Those yeah. were the three options. <laughs> um, and I was trying to think of like, can I have, could I have something on the dog's collar mm-hmm. that I could have a remote for <laughs> that would then drop like a little poof of, of yeah. colored sock or, yeah. or drop something that I could then just, I, I know that wherever my dog's neck in is, is, you know, probably within a couple of feet of whatever he's alerting to. Uh-huh. Um, oh, that's genius. You can yeah, totally and- figure out how to do that. You just have to make sure whatever it was, wasn't accidentally punishing to the dog. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think some, um, I, I, I think the colored chalk idea would be really cool and probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be too punishing to my dog. And then I would end up with all sorts of fun, like, <laughs> <laughs> I've got like a really beautiful purple dog by the end of our search yeah, day. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to think about that and see. Um, I know we've got a couple engineers in our audience. So if anyone's listening and wants to, wants to brainstorm this further, I think that yeah. could be really cool. And, you know, and the nice thing is like, it would be relatively project dependent. Like if we're going out and we're finding mm-hmm. elk scat or bear scat, or, you know, even, you know, a lot of our, our scat from animals that are more than like 25 pounds, it's pretty easy yeah. to go up and confirm most of the times the dog is going to be correct you know, it, it, it's easy enough um, that you wouldn't necessarily need to implement this solution. Um, mm-hmm. But when we are dealing with like really, really tiny things, like again, I'm thinking, and I haven't worked on a bumblebee project, but I know Conservation Dogs Collective has worked on a couple. Um, you know, they're they're really, really hard um, and mm-hmm. really, 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 really tiny. Um, and mm-hmm. that's ah, we. Uh, we'll, we'll, this will be probably one of our last things as we're wrapping up. But thinking about um, different. Different dogs, in my experience, have do better with detail-oriented searching, like finding mm-hmm. little teeny tiny bumblebee nests, mm-hmm. um, where the dog might actually just be searching like a quarter acre a day, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, for for a conservation dog, incredibly small, versus having a dog who really enjoys working a big scent cone of like a grizzly bear scat, and they're searching like 300 acres in a day. And wow. I've really noticed different dogs really prefer that sort of work, and I haven't noticed a lot of breed um like breed specific tendencies as far as that goes yet but i wonder if there would be or at least just you know figuring out with your individual dog what they what they prefer and then trying to you know if you've got enough dogs trying to get the right dog for the job right yeah well i mean yeah because even how dogs move through space varies so much depending on the genetics like you're talking about with the gun dogs you know that kind of Mm -hmm. like flushing type of pattern it's funny even when i'm working with clients dogs and you know we're working on just leash skills like the how many of the spaniels and the setters and you know the pointers Mm -hmm. tend to do this kind of like weaving walking style just when they're moving through space which is Mm -hmm. you know just very kind of unique to the gun dog group you know um and and yeah, I mean, I can see, I would, I would wager that there would be dogs that would be more detail oriented. I, I mean, just right off the top of my head, I'm thinking terriers, you know, they're very detail oriented. It's the nitty gritty and kind of getting in the weeds of whatever it is mm-hmm. that you're particularly looking for. Um, whereas, I mean, some, some dogs would be more inclined to cover large distances but mm-hmm. again, I think those are, I, I don't know what everyone's doing in your field and particularly in different countries, but like how, how many people are using any and every kind of breed to do this kind of work worldwide that you know of? Is it widespread? Um, 
It's relatively widespread. I would say it's interesting, particularly in the U.S., most of the organizations here in the U.S. are relatively rescue dog based. But it's super fascinating to see uh, different organizations culturally prefer their different rescue dogs. So like rogue detection teams, they're primarily rescue dogs. They're almost all cattle dogs. Working Dogs for Conservation is all rescue dogs, and they have a pretty even mix of the labs and the shepherds. Mm -hmm. They've got a couple border collies, but mostly labs and shepherds. Um, And then Conservation Dogs Collective, they do mostly purpose-bred dogs, but they're almost entirely labs. I think they've got one pity mix. Um, and then me, you know, I've got, I'm 50, 50 between lab or, uh, between rescue and purpose bread and I'm border collies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, th- I suspect it's actually a lot of handler preference preference as well, which we, ha- we, uh-huh. we do not have time to get into um, right, right. versus target uh, versus target difference. Because I know for a fact that a lot of those, uh, these organizations are, we're working on similar targets, but, um, you know, again, rogue detection teams, like they are nuts for cattle dogs and, um, mm-hmm. like, at uh, Working Dogs for Conservation, they don't have a single one, and they've got, like, 30-some dogs worldwide. So interesting. So then it's not like you see, though, like, a random sight hound or... No, an, an no. Ironically, I, not a lot of scent hounds either. Not No, you know? no. Nope. No hounds, as far as I know, at least here in the U.S., with any of the big organizations. And, you know, the interesting thing in this field as well is just that, like, I, I pick on these same couple... Um, organizations like the the new jersey uh, trail coalition has a couple dogs conservation dogs hawaii has several um but there's also a lot of people like me in this field where it's like there's one person and two dogs so i'm mm-hmm. sure there's someone out there um, yeah. i just don't don't know everyone in the field quite yet because we don't have a conference so i can't meet everyone oh, you guys need a conference we and do. now that we've all gone virtual you could have an international conference pretty easily i know yeah it's just i i just uh got myself a twitter this week and one of my first tweets was i do not need more projects i do not need more projects i do not need more projects <laughs> um yeah. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, just kind of going back to this like detail oriented versus not sort of dog, um, the, the two dogs that I can think of that were most extreme on this that I've worked were both labs, both yellow labs even. Um, and one, um, one was like, he was an absolute freak for detail oriented work. He just, mm-hmm. he loved, loved, loved searching for boats. He did insect work. Like he loved it. And then as soon as you let him off leash, this dog lost his mind. I mean, he was just running these like massive loops and just, and you knew for a fact he was like running past odor cones because he was mm-hmm. just so excited almost. And, and like, I'm sure mm-hmm. some of that is definitely a training thing, but mm-hmm. just he was such a beautiful search dog when you had him on leash and doing detail oriented stuff. And as soon as you let him off, it was like, oh my gosh, this dog needs so much work versus, That's and they, so they were interesting. And they lived and trained with the same handler. And again, they're both yellow labs, um, but there's there just must be something different versus um, this other this other lab. You know, she, I mean, you could see when you, we had her doing boat searches, like she was plodding, like her tail was down. She was just like, fine, I'll check the boat. And then wow. as soon as, you, as you've got her off leash, she had these beautiful search patterns. She was happy um, and she was really, really reliable. Um, wow. Yeah, see, and, and that that's really interesting too because that makes me think about competing arousal, right? So like it could be something like for that one really detail-oriented lab, it could have been that there was a competing arousal upon being off leash that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, turned on a different type of searching mechanism 
mechanism, right? Like yeah. that's maybe some of the flushing and, you know, so it, it's just fascinating to think of all that. And I think, um, one of the reasons I love talking with you and so many of these other awesome people who've got these podcasts, <laughs> these last, you know, number of months is that like, it's a, it's a humble exploration, right? Like we're interested, we're intrigued. Mm-hmm. We're not like, Oh my gosh, we've got all this stuff figured out. Let us give you like an hour long, no. hour and a half yeah. long lecture, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, they're really interesting questions. And I think it's so humbling in a field that has been kind of, um, defined by, there's an answer. You're supposed to have the answer. You're, you're supposed to be God. You're supposed to be able to control everything. Like, you know, this kind of power dynamic and dog training of like, make it do what I want it to do, make it not do what I don't want it to do. And, and it's so, it's so incorrect. It's just so oversimplistic and like minimizing the vastness of what we don't know. And there are just so many places to look and ask and explore, um, that I think really matter to a more complete understanding. knowing that there'll always be things that we don't know and always new questions to ask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so, so, so much. There's so many rocks left to to overturn. And I do, I really think like at some point, oh, I don't know, I need like, I need to go to grad school three times, I think. Yeah, is me too. I, I want to go like get four PhDs, you know, like in a variety yeah. of different things. And, and I don't have enough lives and time to do it. But oh, me neither. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've like had legitimate conversations with mentors about mine, uh, of mine of like, I think I need to go to grad school once for animal behavior and like canine cognition or ethology or something. And then I need to go back again and do ecology um, mm-hmm. rather than doing a PhD in one of the two, at least to start. And like, right. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, <laughs> um, as we're wrapping up here, cause I do, I try to keep this at an hour and I'm so bad at it when I'm talking to you. Cause there's just so much go- to go through. Um, is there anything else we need to, to bring up or circle back to um, before we, uh, we let you plug your pluggables? No, I, I don't think so. Okay, cool. Well, um, and I'm sure we'll think of things and people on our Patreon, of course, can submit questions that we'll, we'll have a conversation. Who knows? Maybe if you, if our patrons are nice enough, we'll get Kim on to do a patrons only live. I don't know. Join our Patreon and we'll find out. Um, so Kim, I know you have a bunch of amazing courses and all sorts of cool speaking gigs that people, um, people need to uh, need to know about. So where can people find you and keep track of all of that? Well, um, they can, of course, check out our website right now. It's not the new one, but the new one will be up soon. And that's dogdoorbehaviorcenter.com. Um, find me on Facebook. Uh, it's just Kim Brophy, or you can look at our dog door page that we have on Facebook as well. Um, we have an upcoming awesome, uh, course that's going to be in person at Wolf Park in Indiana in August. Um, and that same course will be offered online starting in September, but, um, enrollment is now open. So for folks that are already working with dogs professionally or are thinking about getting into working with dogs professionally or in some kind of a dog related field. Um, it's, it's meant to fill in all those blanks and kind of build some bridges and get people's minds, uh, open to this vast amount of science that hasn't really been integrated fully into the dog training and behavior world so far. Um, and then I'll also be speaking at APDT this year. So that'll be, I think that's in October. Some, so some folks can catch us there as well. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll make sure to link to all of that in the show notes, as well as the, you know, the Nat Geo article on the dopamine gene and, you yes. know, uh, 
and we'll snap and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. 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 There's going to be a lot of links in this episode, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So, and you can find our show notes at canineconservationists.org. It's letter K number nine conservationists.org. And there you can also find information on our Patreon, which has, um, as we've mentioned, we've got two new tiers in our Patreon where you can now um, do a video analysis club at the two highest levels of Patreon. And at the highest level, you can submit videos of you and your dog working together to get some feedback. It's meant to be super constructive and helpful and kind. Um, Mm. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, And you can always, of course, support us over at GoFundMe or um, all sorts of, we've got swag, we've got merch over on our website right now. So just, it's all over on canineconservationists.org. You'll find it there. That's the easiest thing. (laughs) That's awesome. So again, thanks so much for coming on, Kim. It was a pleasure as always. And um, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Have fun.